You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on November the 22nd on the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, JFK, who according to the internet wants a pine that nothing compares to the simple pleasure of riding a bicycle. A quote that seems about as well substantiated as some renderings of Theo Gegenhart's interview with the Cycling Podcast last week on certain Spanish, Italian and French websites. The less said about that, the better. Or maybe we will revisit it and issue a few corrections. My name is Daniel Freiber and I am the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we will try not to get lost in too much speculation about some of the unsolved mysteries thrown up by the world of professional cycling over the last few days. Most notably those pertaining to Rod Ellingworth's resignation from Ineos Grenadiers and the closure of GCN Plus and the GCN app by Warner Brothers Discovery Inc. Joining me to hopefully do that today are two gentlemen that can speak with some authority to certainly one of those big issues of over the last few days. Our great Dane, El Barone, El Baron, sorry, Il Barone, Brian Nygaard. Brian, how are you? Where are you? What's going on? Um, thank you, Daniel. Uh, I'm well. I'm, uh, I just passed the COVID test because I've been a little bit under the Eek. weather. Um, but other than that, I'm well. I had my debut this week as an art critic in the newspaper I write for. And uh, other than that, yeah, all good. It's just a quiet time of the year, isn't it? Debut as an art critic. Wow, Brian. What will you? What what role will you take on next for us? I don't know. Um, you've, you've been a hopefully one that has an income yeah, attached yeah. to it. Um, and also joining us from a very snowy Vermont, um, which I've just established before we turned on the microphone, is very mountainous, and um, but he's not very high. Um, Peachum, Vermont. Uh, it's Ian Boswell, the former Team Sky rider. He was at Sky from 2013, 2017. Thereafter, did a bit of a coda to his career at Katusha in 2018-2019. Um, Ian, how are you? I'm doing well, Daniel. Yeah, it is, a, it is a quiet time of the year, although tomorrow is American Thanksgiving, so I spent the morning putting a 16-pound, what is that, 5-6 kilo turkey into a bucket of brine for the big festivities tomorrow. Wow. Wow. Um, I would love to do a Thanksgiving in the United States. Never done that. Um, it's, it's a bit of a mystery to those of us who have never lived in the United States Thanksgiving. Um, but we'll partake in that at some point. I will partake in that at some point. Um, Ian, um, JFK's assassination 60 years ago. Um, it got me thinking. got me thinking about grassy knolls, um, conspiracies. Um, I was, I've been reading over the last couple of days about the extent to which the assassination of JFK is still a mystery. Of course, the grassy knoll, the theory that uh, it wasn't just um, Lee Harvey Oswald who shot um, JFK, but there was another shooter positioned on behind the grassy knoll. Of course, this has set tongues wagging, got people, well, furiously ex- exploring various conspiracy theories about who the second shooter may have been. Um, over the last 60 years. Chaps, great conspiracies in professional cycling, the equivalents of the grassy knoll theory um, off the top of our heads. And there have been a lot, and I don't want you to be flippant about any of this, about the assassination of presidents or um, anyone's death in professional cycling. But of course, there have been a lot of conspiracies about Marco Pantani's death 
um, lots of in investigations about how that occurred, why it occurred. Um, there was a, a frankly absurd one about Chris Froome's crash at the Dauphiné in 2019, all sorts of theories about him even not having crashed that day. And and I don't know, having, I don't know what people thought had happened behind that particular grassy knoll in the Dauphiné near Saint-Étienne. Um, there's some, some others going further back, chaps. The Italians, Brian, as you know, they're experts in conspiracy theories and all sorts of conspiracy theories about Fausto Coppi's death. Um, officially, he fell victim to malaria, of course. Um, but thereafter, in 2002, there was an old Italian Olympic Committee director, manager, um, executive, Mino Cadullo, who put forward the theory that he'd been poisoned and this was all part of an elaborate plan to avenge the death of a cyclist from the Ivory Coast who had died in another race um, because he'd been pushed, after he'd been pushed. Um, going further back, chaps, uh, Ottavio Botecchia, um, found at the roadside in Friuli in, uh, that was in the 20s, wasn't it? Again, all sorts of people sort of expounding various theories on their deathbeds to priests about how Botecchi had been maybe caught stealing grapes, um, how he'd maybe been caught, he'd been killed by a hitman. Um, uh, one common theme about these Italian conspiracy theories, there's always a priest involved, um, I tend to find. There was another conspiracy theory about Eddie Merckx's positive test in the 1969 Giro d'Italia in Savona. I remember about Merckx having been gone, I think it was the cathedral in Parma, having gone in there for mass before one of the stages and his bike having been parked up outside and someone having seen a bottle being um, being exchanged. And again, there was a confession to a priest. Um, chaps, anyway, that was very elaborate and long-winded. And can you think of any other great cycling conspiracies? Brian? Well, I have one. I have one that, that I was reminded of it this morning because I, I took my uh, last uh, sachet of Fumichil, which apparently was uh, what was in the Jiffy bag sent to the team, then Team Sky, Team Boss after Dauphine. Um, that is a very good one. And there was a, uh, th yeah, that was the, you know, the big debate. Who sent it? What was the real um, contents of this uh, Jiffy bag? And apparently, uh, if I'm not wrong, the, uh, the, the explanation was it was Fumicile, which is and it's like a mucus, uh, anti-mucus product that you can buy I mean you basically buy it almost in the supermarket here so uh, and probably also in France I don't know but that was uh, it reminded me of that which there was a lot of conspirational uh, activity around that uh, dispatchment very similar isn't it the grassy you know well the, the jiffy back has become a sort of a, a byword for shorthand for conspiracies in professional cycling in the same way that the grassy knoll is a term that is sort of used with mirth and humour um, well, uh, Contador Steak comes to mind is, as well. That's a good one as well. That's a good one as well. Yeah, and, and um, one that was, I guess, more my era. And two riders I actually got a ride with this past week and was the, uh, I'm not sure how widely known this is, but the 2012 uh, Olympic Games in London when oh, yes. Rigoberto looks over his left shoulder on the left fence and then Vina Kurov comes up the other side and, and takes Olympic gold. More uh, titillating anecdotal, well, material 
about Mr. Vinokurov later in the episode. I think I'm right in saying it. Um, but chaps, before we disappear any further down this rabbit hole of speculation, something I promise we wouldn't do, uh, let's concentrate on concrete facts now. And let's get to this week's news roundup. I said there, well, I said there wouldn't be too much speculation. I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to default on that immediately by covering the latest round of hints, murmurs, intimations about what some of the Peloton's big hitters, Grand Girl, are going to do and ride in 2024. We'll start with Wout van Aert and talk of him targeting the Giro d'Italia. That still hasn't been confirmed by Jumbo Visma, but he did shoot our colleague Laura Messeger. A knowing smile when she quizzed him on the matter at the Giro de Rigo in Colombia last week. Meanwhile, Tade Pogacar said a big bag of nothing, really. Uh, his agents, Alex and Johnny Carrera's big annual party, discoteca in Italy at the weekend. Um, but that didn't stop another round of rumours in the Italian press suggesting he is already committed to doing La Corsa Rosa or stories in Spain confidently predicting that he definitely won't be doing the Giro d'Italia. Also in the last couple of days, Remco Evenepoel has seemed to dash Italian hopes for the Belgian attempting the Giro Tour double by posting a Strava ride entitled Here We Go, La Grande Boucle and La Gazzetta dello Sport, meanwhile, has reported that the Giro d'Italia will be Simon Yates' big Grand Tour goal of 2024. But in the last 20 minutes or so, Brian, I've had a message from our good friend Matt White, the Jayco Alula, uh, top bod really, um, head sports director Matt White, um, assuring me that that is certainly not the case, um, certainly not at this stage. That team has not done its planning yet for 2024, um, so that's very premature of the La Gazzetta del Sport. So chaps, in summary... Um, no certainties there about what anyone's doing in 2024. So um, not very not very useful. Um, now, real news, cyclocross news. The World Cup visited Troyes in France the weekend with Ellie Isabit taking the men's race and Céline del Carmen Alvarado, the women's. Both, though, were somewhat overshadowed by the UCI president, David Lapartion, threatening to ban riders who skipped future World Cup rounds from the World Championships. I wonder what sanctions La Partien would suggest for journalists who boycott the whole sport of cyclocross. Uh, next item, an interesting one. Uh, and this was a special report in L'Equipe at the weekend about a potential new wonder doping drug named M101, M101, developed from marina lugworms extracellular hemoglobin, which can supposedly transport 40 times more oxygen than human hemoglobin and is 250 times smaller than red blood cells. Most intriguingly, the man who made the discovery and founded a pharmaceutical company to commercialize M101, Dr. Franck Zal, claimed that he was contacted by a big Tour de France rider with a foreign-sounding name in 2020. They exchanged a few emails, which Dr. Zal then passed on to the French police. The good news is that the drug is detectable, at least for between four and eight hours in in the blood. And WADA are very much aware of it. There was a very rapid understanding of this substance and its risks for doping purposes. We bought the product and put it in the hands of the anti-doping labs. Professor Olivier Rabin, scientific director of WADA, said... Ian, I know that you read this, or you read stories about this story, certainly. Um, I must say, I had a quizzical eyebrow raised about this well, story told by Dr. Franck Zal about him being contacted by a Tour de France rider. 
um, with a view, one presumes, to procuring this substance for doping purposes. Would any Tour de France rider, well, look up a lab director, pharmaceutical company founder in the Vendée region of France, email him, um, you know, presumably from their Gmail address or their (laughs) Yahoo address. I mean, really? Yeah, I mean, it does all seem a bit obscure. Um, not not discrediting that you know this drug could be potentially you know a performance altering drug. It could you know potentially there could be use. I mean, if you if you're a Tour de France contending rider, um, I would assume you would have people around you who could do this for you. Um, but I mean, even that is is a little bit far fetched, and you know I don't know the extent of which this drug has been used in in sport or in you know for any sort of performance benefits. Um, but yeah, the fact that that they're claiming that a rider reached out on their own to a you know to a to a lab to see if they could obtain this product, it does just seem a little bit. Um, well, you definitely click the headlines, but I'm not sure how much validity there is to to someone going out and doing it on their own. Presumably, ask for it to be sent in a jiffy bag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, Brian, I can see you have a quizzical eyebrow raised as well. I, no, I, it's, I mean, we've seen uh, judgment calls being made from all kinds of levels of intelligence. I just think if you instrumentally, if you were so inclined that you wanted to cheat, you'd probably, you'd probably not go after the most immediate paper trail. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, bottom line, water's onto it, and that's, that's the most important thing. Uh, the rest is, is uh, speculation, I suppose, but it, it does sound very I peculiar. think we should rename the... Sounds like a great. Sounds like a great drug, though. But it sounds, but also sounds like it's named after like a, a, a Monaco vanity plate already. You know, for for a, a Mercedes SL. What was the name again? M one hundred. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, must be a very expensive license. <laughs> Henceforth, the news roundup should be renamed the speculation roundup. Uh, a couple of bits of contract news with Tibor uh, Nace. Extending his little Trek deal until the end of 2026. And Paris Tour winner Riley Sheehan signing for three years with Israel Premier Tech. Sheehan, of course, won Paris Tour as a stagiaire in, when was that, October. Uh, meanwhile, Thomas DeHent has confirmed that 2024 will be his last year in the World Tour. Finally, chaps, I... Well, a couple of a couple of final bits of news, actually. Um, one, before I forget, I haven't got it noted down here, but I thought we should pass comment on them. The great betrayal um, of which our good friend Larry Warbass has been a protagonist in the last couple of days. He's cheated on us with Geraint Thomas's podcast. Um, I got some messages yesterday alerting me to the fact that, yeah, Larry had appeared on another podcast and it was Geraint Thomas's. I sent Larry a message yesterday um, suggesting or inviting his, him to wave at us on his way down now that he's really made really <laughs> made, really made the big time. Um, whether Larry will appear, will deign to, will, will lower himself to appearing on the cycling podcast again. I don't know. Um, I will listen to that. I haven't listened to it yet, but I will do. Um, finally, chaps, also in entertainment news, I wanted to mention that German, Swiss and Austrian listeners will be able to watch the hotly anticipated Jan Ulrich documentary series Der Gejagte or The Hunted on Amazon Prime next Tuesday or from next Tuesday. Um, I spoke yesterday to Ulrich's manager, advisor, Mike Baldinger, and he said the filmmakers Konstantin are still negotiating to secure a wider release for the film. 
Um, Ulrich has been doing interviews to generate a bit of pre-release buzz. He told Stern magazine that amid his 2018, more deep 2018 personal crisis, he was drinking whiskey-like water, taking huge quantities of cocaine. Uh, Die Zeit also published a joint interview that they did with Ulrich and Armstrong. Um, they did that in, it was September, I think, or October, but it was published out the weekend. Um, chaps, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I've seen some teasers, some trailers. Um, there is, was certainly a, a more sort of evolved version of Ulrich's previous confessions. Um, in this documentary, he, he's admitted that he did, well, not only, well, he, he didn't believe that he cheated fellow competitors, maybe, who were also doping, but he certainly did cheat the fans who believed that his performances were clean. Um, there's a lot of talk, I know, in the documentary about that 2018 personal crisis, and I expect us to find out quite a lot in this documentary. Right, um, Brian, you looking forward to this one? Yeah, absolutely. Usually the um, the other um, elements to the Ulrich story that I've seen uncovered have, have been done by you, first and foremost, but also the ARD, I believe, have had a, a documentary series about him. Uh, it's interesting for me, you know, it's not, I don't think there's a lot of surprises left from that era, but listening to a personal story from someone like him, I, I think is, is interesting and uh, relevant, even if we often try and talk about this as something that's in the past. I, I still think these personal stories are extremely relevant and, and very interesting. It also covers an area where from when I started to become interested in cycling to when I actively worked in it. So I, yeah, I'll keep my eye out for that. Also, I'll, I'll, I'll watch anything cycling these days because there's no racing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also looking forward to it. And Daniel, I did read your book, I guess it was about 12 months ago, and I actually just recommended it to the head of Pinarello North America. I think Pinarello is still a partner of, of Ulrich, and I told him about the book. And then I guess for me, it's, it's fascinating to have grown up through that era of watching Ulrich, but, you know, being in the U.S. when I guess I was, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 at the time. So not really tuned into what was actually happening in cycling. You know, all we saw was, you know, Phil Liggett and Paul Sherman on TV talking about how great these athletes were and not really knowing what was going on behind the scenes. As of course, I've grown older and learned more. You realize, oh, there was a lot. The sport was very different than I perceived it as a, as a young man in, in the U.S. watching it on TV. Um, so it's really been interesting for me to see like what the sport was like back then and, and just how much it has changed and evolved. And, and I guess also to similar in a way to watching the, the David Beckham documentary, like just not really realizing how big these athletes were in their country at the time, you know, in the U S I knew Ulrich as a pro cyclist, but I didn't realize all that was going on around him back in Germany in the, you know, early two thousands. Yeah, I mean, as someone who, as you both of you chaps know, um, dedicated a lot of time to Jan Ulrich and telling his story, uh, I suppose, well, I'm always a little bit nervous when I hear about these things because you wonder and you fear that certain things you've written, in spite of well, having tried to be extremely diligent and forensic with your research, you just wonder whether certain things you've written will be debunked, um, whether his version of events will be very different to your own. Um, so I'll be watching with great interest and some trepidation um i must say but um it is it's an interesting genre this that's emerging um and it's a i guess a very valuable one and a very appealing one to athletes former athletes pop stars footballers um i just finished watching the robbie williams docuseries on netflix um robbie williams not a musician i had a, a huge amount of time for but quite a quite a 
a revealing insight and very watchable insight into the perils of fame. Um, Jan Ulrich experienced a different flavor of fame as a top sports person rather than a pop megastar in Germany. Rather, Sounds like they had some of the same Some habits. of the same habits and probably felt some of the same pressures. And and also the the difficulty, I think the real difficulty of readjustment after experiencing well, a career trajectory, a meteoric career trajectory. Um, you know, Jan Ulrich was a very, very young cycling superstar. Robbie Williams was a very, very young pop megastar. And just that long, long process of... Um, sort of recalibration to something resembling, well, first, a slightly less intense and febrile version of what you experienced initially, and then a sort of slow tapering of that towards something resembling a normal life, albeit with a lot of the trapping still of your fame and a lot of the recognition and attention of your fame, um, but maybe without some of the more difficult aspects of it, but also without some of the more kind of exciting and exhilarating aspects of that first phase. Yeah, I mean, just one more thing on this. I mean, one of the things that I've observed just through watching, you know, the difference between a sportsman and I guess, you know, a musician or someone who's like, you know, seeking that fame, you know, and I, I guess I recognize this last year at the tour with, with Jonas Vingegaard, the fact that you put so much effort into a singular thing of being the best you possibly can at your sport. And then the fame comes without you really knowing it. And, you know, I think if, you know, you're a young celebrity, you know, pop star, you're seeking that fame. And all of a sudden when you're an athlete, you get to a certain status and that th fame is then thrown upon you. And then it's like, how do you deal with it now? And how do you not let that distract you and take away from what you want to do, what you're good at? And that's your sport. And I think that's like a huge challenge you see with athletes that they put so much effort into, to, you know, the training, the preparation, the events. And then all of a sudden this other side of, you know, the world comes at you that you've done no preparation for and you're not ready for it, which is, I think, a huge contrast to people who kind of seek out fame through, you know, TV, movies, music, um, who are kind of seeking that fame. And that's the kind of the, the point and the purpose of their, you know, career. Shoot, uh, shoot that arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour. And this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Babbel. Maybe you're already planning a holiday or a trip somewhere next year, perhaps a visit to the Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia or the Vuelta a España, and you want to be able to speak a bit of the language when you get there. Well, Babbel can help you. It can help you learn a new language step by step. It's an easy to use app that builds up your understanding using real life dialogue and lessons created by language experts and world class teachers. It means that you're building the foundation for your new language right from the start and you're using handy phrases straight away, not AI-generated gibberish, but phrases that real people know that you'll be able to use in real situations. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian and German, all languages that are resident real-life babble. Daniel Freebert speaks fluently, of course. Babbel's a bit like having a personal language coach to call on whenever you want to do a lesson, and the lessons can be pretty short. As little as 10 minutes a day on Babbel will ensure that you're progressing and you can make language learning part of your daily routine right from the start. You can choose from the lessons on the app, play games, listen to the podcast, and just build up your language bit by bit. 
Right now, Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription. You just need the promo code CYCLING. Go to babbel.com slash play and use the promo code CYCLING to get an extra six-month free. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash play with the promo code CYCLING. Babbel, language learning that works. This episode is also sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. Are you running a small company and you need somebody to join your workforce as soon as possible? Well, if so, LinkedIn Jobs could help you find the right person quickly and for free. Because there's a whole world of possible candidates out there. The tricky bit is how do you find the best people? LinkedIn Jobs is really easy to use. You can write out your job ad, making it very clear what you're looking for and what the job entails, and then post it on LinkedIn Jobs. Then you add the purple hiring hashtag frame to your LinkedIn profile, and that helps to spread the word that you're on the lookout for somebody. You can use a simple tools such as screening questions to narrow down your search and make sure that you focus on the people with just the right skills and expertise. And that way you can draw up a short list of candidates that you want to interview. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to more quickly. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash cycle. That's linkedin.com slash cycle to post your job ad for free. Terms and conditions apply. Not, they, don't, not, they don't always have people with them, do they, you know, who support them. And I wanted him to feel supported in a way. Even though it's external, outside of his team, I don't coach Cav anymore, but you never lose that sort of connection deal with people I don't think one of the biggest things I always worked on him when he was a young lad was them days it was because for him winning is easy when he's on top of his game it's this when I always taught him about you as I do all the lads who are bigger lads who aren't climbers they've got to learn to be in the back group of in, in a grand tour if you want to ride a grand tour and you want to be competitive it's like Luke all the guys Stanard all of them they've got to learn to be in the back group and there's a technique to it there's a, there's a, men, a mental capacity you need for it I, I've talked to them all them lads about it a lot so a lot of my talk with Cav is a, or you know in the past has, has always been about stuff like that you know because the other side of it you get him fit in it and he's winning it's easy That's I, I can't tell him how to win a bike race he knows more than anybody but you can sort of get it in their heads about how do they get through days like that you know is that is that why he finished the stage yesterday? Because you'd always instilled in him that he had to that he had to keep I, trying. I, I don't know. He hasn't said anything. He, has, he he didn't say that to me. But you know, I I always sort of I all the lads, not just Mark, all the guys, always say the same. You know, try and if you can finish, try and finish, isn't it? You know, same happened to Gerain in 2005. I can't remember what race it was now. And we were in Chambry, and he was going up the cold the race finish up colded Glandon or whatever. And he was miles down. He cut all his hands to pieces. He couldn't hold the handlebars properly. But I said to him, you know, even though you're miles down, don't get off, finish the race, and you finish the stage race. You know, it's, an, it's another day done, isn't it? You don't get good by sitting on your, your ass on the settee. Do you? <laughs> it's true, isn't it, you know? Well, we chaps, go. I promised uh, at the start of today's episode that we would be talking about Rod Ellingworth leaving Ineos Grenadiers. That was a clip from 2018. Now, we have, over the years, uh, recorded hours of conversations with Rod Ellingworth. And today, I thought 
I should pick a little clip, um, which maybe gave us a little flavour of what Rod Ellingworth has contributed to the INEOS and prior to that Sky organisations. That clip was 2018. It was the day after, or a couple of days after, Mark Cavendish had been time cut from the Tour de France at La Rosière in the Alps. That day, Geraint Thomas won the stage at La Rosière en route to winning the Tour de France. And well, I thought that clip it gave us an idea of well, one of Rod Ellingworth's great qualities as far as I have known him over the years is his emotional intelligence and that emotional intelligence was certainly key to his relationship with Mark Cavendish. Mark Cavendish is probably well, the, the, the best known, most successful, most decorated protégé um, product of the British Cycling Academy that Rod Ellingworth set up and Geraint Thomas was another product of that academy as well. Um, I think it was after that Tour de France, I wrote a tweet just sort of summing up what Rod had contributed um, to British cycling and his, what his products, um, if we call them that, had won. Um, there was one Tour de France, one rainbow road jersey, 12 rainbow track jerseys, 51 Grand Tour stages, one Dauphiné, one Paris one San Remo, five Olympic golds had all come from, well, as I put it, uh, a, one Mancunian terraced house circa 2005. That was where they were all based, Cavendish's, Geraint Thomas, um, and so on, Ben Swift, and so on and so forth. And, um, well, as you chaps both know, Rod was, when Team Sky launched in 2010, he was absorbed into that organisation. Um, and the first role he had was was race coach, which was a new role. And Sky sort of, well, they, they reinvented some of the lexicon of professional cycling, didn't they? They had carers rather than soigneurs. Race coach, we'd not really heard that before took us a while to sort of understand speaking to rod what the job entailed and then his job evolved over the years until in 2019 it was announced that he was leaving uh, what was about to become Ineos it had been sky and he was going to basically head up the Bahrain victorious I think they were were they still Bahrain Merida at that time um he was basically becoming their team principal he he did that job for just over a year, so the COVID season, 2020. He then went back to Ineos Grenadiers, and at the time of his resignation, so we learned of his resignation last week, was the deputy team principal. That was a role that he'd had for a while. Now, as I said, we've spoken to Rod at great, great length many, many times over the years. There's an excellent episode that Lionel did with Rod, Brunch with Rod Ellingworth, I think we called it a friend special in 2020. So the COVID year when Rod was at Bahrain uh, Victorious, just talking about how he, well, how he got into cycling, how he got into the British um, Federation. Um, the early years of Rod Ellingworth, I would recommend you go back and listen to that. Um, but chaps, um, Rod, he's not, well, I exchanged messages with him last week and he said that he'd resigned a couple of weeks ago, in fact, a couple of weeks before the news was reported. Um, he didn't explain necessarily all of the reasons for what had happened or for the decision he'd taken. Um, 
but this comes against the backdrop of a lot of changes at Ineos, we think. And a, a lot of talk as well, an awful lot of talk about what's going on at Ineos Grenadiers. We've had this delay this year in their new signing announcements. Um, there are some, for example, Tobias Foss, the Norwegian rider, we've expected him to be announced any day for months and months. Um, I've heard that Tobias Foss still doesn't have his contract from Ineos Grenadiers. And that situation, that impasse, um, is is still sort of going on. Uh, a lot of ch- other changes. Roger Hammond is leaving, director sportif. Um, I'll, I'll I'll go over in a, in a minute or two all of the changes um, in the sort of DS department over the last couple of years. Um, but chaps, it's it's a big sort of break with the past. It's an end of an era, another end of an era. There have been other influential figures. Um, who have left over? Well, sorry, influence. Oh, John will do that. Uh, do that again. There've been other sort of watersheds over the last two or three years. I mentioned the change in name, Ineos, and Dave Brailsford taking a step back. We know that the the Ineos partial takeover or investment in Manchester United that might um, be formalised and finalised in the next few days. But chaps, um, Rod Ellingworth leaving Ineos. Um, why is this important? We'll start with you, uh, Ian who knew Rod and what, as a rider when he was a coach. Why is this important? Yeah, I think Rod, you know, he was one of the one of the founding members of the team. Um, you know, I always found Rod, as you said, very emotionally intelligent, you know, in a team like Sky that was very focused on the numbers, the data, you know, measuring things and calculating things. Rod brought an element of kind of human to, to the team. And, you know, I, I always, I guess when I was at the team, you know, it was the time when you had this very strong, you know, British English contingent, you know, you had, you know, as you mentioned, Swift and G and Ian, Ian Standard, Luke Rowe, you know, all these riders, you know, Pete Kenna was there as well. These riders who, you know, I went to Luke Rowe's wedding and, and Rod was there, you know, I was like, okay, so they're beyond just, you know, colleagues at work. They are friends on and off the bike. Um, and he was a very instrumental part in those riders success. I think also batting for those riders to be, you know, at the team, you know, to give them not always second chances, but to, to support them and make them feel comfortable. I found it very strange when he then went on to become, you know, I guess the principal or the, you know, head honcho mm. at, I guess it was Bahrain McLaren at the time, wasn't it? Um, ah, and then yes, came correct. and then came back to to Enios and became and kind of took over Brailsford's role. Um, you know, it's very much a case of right place, right time. You know, I mean, because I look at you know my junior national team coach when I was you know fifteen, sixteen, if that individual was now running. Enios or EF, I'd be like, whoa, that not not necessarily the position you, yeah. you should be in. Um, you know, and, and Rod understands racing. He had the opportunity to, you know, grow and learn through through the years with the team. Um, but I think it's also potentially a case of, you know, the team needing someone to fill that role. And and Rod had kind of was the most senior person in that position. But I think deep down, Rod still wants to be one of the boys. He still wants to be there, you know, friends with the riders. And and the reality is a lot of those riders who he grew up or he, I guess, fostered through their, you know, career, they have moved on. You know, G's kind of the last one there. I guess Luke is still there as well. But, you know, Cavs on a different team. Pete Kenna's retired. Ian Standard's now in in the team car. You know, so that team has also changed a lot. Um so it'll be, it's, it's, I guess it's for me, it's, it's fascinating to see where he came from and where he got to within such a organized and professional team. But I do wonder how much of it is his role turned into something that he not necessarily wanted it to become and got away from how he initially got into the sport and what he loved about the sport of cycling. 
I think that tallies perfectly with what I what I always heard from Rod and right going right back to and Brian um, will ask you about this in a second because you were there at the very start very inception of Team Sky but I th- I always had the impression that um, Dave Brailsford in particular and other people involved at British Cycling they knew that Rod had fantastic qualities they they weren't entirely sure initially how he would fit into what was a world tour setup and you know I said that they well they created a role for him race coach which was a new role and even in those first two or three years when you spoke to Rod there was a sense that his first love was coaching young people and that that was also his great strength because he was brilliant and he is brilliant at simplifying things and to young riders whose whose head may be full of lots of different information and different ideas about what they need to be doing um, rod would he would get right to the nitty-gritty and give them a perfect sort of roadmap as to how to get to professional cycling and and they found great comfort and great confidence in the simplicity of that allied with his fantastic emotional intelligence um and then over the years of him being at team sky naturally his role and his responsibilities um, evolved enlarged possibly to the extent where he found himself quite a long way from that original first love i don't know brian what's your impression i i agree with everything that's been been said so far i mean when rod ellingworth talks you listen He's extremely good at motivating riders at any level. And he's someone, I think, in a, in a very, at least initially, technologically founded team and a team that you know, talked a lot about marginal gains. He, he, he was the guy who could cut through all the data and actually uh, talk to the human being that's on the bike, which is, is fundamental for, uh, at least for a lot of riders, it is. And you know, I've seen him also... Uh, you know, from working with him, from seeing him at races and talking to him. And he's someone, and you probably second that, Daniel, as a, as a journalist or whichever function I've talked to him, he's always been someone who's almost said too much. You know, I've been talking to him as a journalist and was thinking, wow, if I was your press officer, I wouldn't be saying all these things. There's just something very, um, he, he really lets his guard down. I think he was born with his guard down. He's very open. He's always has, always has a, a perspective. And other than that, he's just someone that's nice to talk to. Uh, and, you know, I, I might, you know, like he would, we would share a playlist. He would introduce me to bands. And the next second, we would talk about uh, the value of SRM in training. Very, very easy to talk to. And, and of all the, um, through all the issues that, that Team Sky had before it became uh, Team Ineos, he's still been the one that, that has kept every single bit of his credibility throughout issues that have faced, say, Dave Brailsford or Shane Sutton, Ellingworth still comes out as a very trustworthy person in all of this. Um, and But I also agree with some of the other characteristics in an organization, especially an organization that struggles making results. Uh, this hasn't been easy years for him since he came back again. Yeah, just on the the reconciliation. So it was it was relatively, I think I'm right in saying, acrimonious when he left for Bahrain. Um, and Ineos and Dave Brailsford felt a bit. Blindsided Can I just say though, Daniel, that, it kind of goes against the fact that he, you know, if you want to establish the argument saying, ah, oh, he maybe didn't really want to be the boss, maybe he didn't, maybe just wanted to be one of the boys. Then why would he go to Bahrain to to be the boss, right? To go into a new structure, not being one of the boys, maybe for trying it. I don't know, but I think that. That's relevant to touch upon as well in, in his characteristics. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe sort of in the fullness of time, um, Rod will tell us that some of the issues that made him look elsewhere in 2019 reared their head again and have ultimately been behind his decision to leave a second time from Ineos. Um, I'm not sure. But as I said, it was there was certainly, uh, I think, a feeling on the part of Dave Browse that he'd been blindsided blindsided when Rod went to Bahrain in the first place in 2019. Um, Their relationship for the next 18 months was, I think, frosty, I'm right in saying. And then at the end of the 2020 Vuelta, on the last day of the 2020 Vuelta, I saw them sneaking off together. And as far as I knew at that point, they'd not spoken for months and months and months. And they, they snuck off to a restaurant just um, off the Plaza de Cibeles where the Vuelta finishes. And I sort of winked, at, I saw Rod as he was coming out and kind of winked at him and I sort of, you could figure out what was going on because I think that was also a time when it was fairly well known that Dave Brasler was looking for someone to step into uh, more of a leadership role again and almost fill the void that Rod had left. And sure enough, he did come back, but he's found himself, particularly as Dave Brasler has concentrated his energies on the Nice football team in particular, he's found himself as the spokesperson, the figurehead, um, almost the kind of talisman of that team at a time when, as you said, um, Ian, a lot of the relationships, the historic relationships that he'd had were had kind of reached their expiry date because those individuals were not in the organisation anymore. And he found himself having to do things like, Brian, you said he's, he's great to speak to if you're a journalist, um, but it's not something that he particularly relishes in all circumstances you know he's not the 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 sort of team principal who will happily position himself out of a team bus almost in the expectation almost with a view to journalists sort of coming in his direction and asking him questions about all sorts of issues um if you know him if he trusts you then um he's, he's very glad to speak but not not always and um and i think this year you know we've all heard about the, some of the delays for example in the recruitment that ineos have done this year and my understanding um and this certainly doesn't come from rod but um, is that he was having to put his face to decisions that were being made higher up or elsewhere, perhaps by Dave Brailsford. For example, I mentioned it before on the podcast, the Carlos Verona issue. Um, Carlos Verona was a rider who thought, was very much under the impression that he was going to sign for Ineos Grenadiers. Going back months and months to the start of 2023, um, or early on in 2023, there was a change of heart at Ineos, and it was Rod who ultimately had to inform Carlos Verona, Carlos Verona's entourage, that it wasn't going to happen anymore. And I don't think that decision necessarily came from Rod. And I think that applies to Ineos' negotiations with a couple of other riders as well. Um, that Rod was the bearer of bad news and it was a case of don't shoot the messenger. Um, and that I, whether that is is ultimately behind the decision, I think other people, Garrett Thomas, for example, on his podcast talked about Rod wanting to spend more time with his family. I've also heard that as well. And again, we'll probably find out over the next few weeks. Well, it also, I think it goes to, it's important to underline that major decisions about your career will always impact uh, or be a major decision in your life. It might not just be one reason. There might be several reasons that then, turn into a conclusion that's obvious for him and his family. You know, it's not necessarily, oh, I, I hated being, you know, the guy delivering the bad news, especially when I wasn't part of the decision making. So, I mean, and 
when you work for that long in professional cycling, when you travel all those days, I think there's always a desire to, oh, maybe it's actually a little bit, uh, we're at the time now where I need to do something else, i.e. spend more time with my family. It could be a lot of things that go into that decision-making, I think. Yeah, I mean, we also have to remember that Rod was at Team Sky in, in the absolute heyday when like the team couldn't take a, or couldn't, you know, really take a misstep. You know, they, they were winning every races. They were, you know, tour after tour, they showed up with the best team and they, you know, came away with success. And and how difficult is that now for Rod to kind of have been in that environment to know what that success looks like and to now be in a position to make those decisions to continue on that legacy, but not be able to, you know, if people above him are, you know, making choices that, he doesn't agree with, you know, whether it's signing riders, whether it's, you know, selecting teams. And if he's being kind of maybe overshadowed by, by Brailsford, who's not, not there on a day-to-day operation, but yet still making decisions or whether it's Radcliffe or other people within the, in the organization, I could see how that could be frustrating because he knows what that team was like. He knows what the culture and the environment was like when the team was successful and he knows how to rebuild that, but he's maybe not given the keys to actually do what he what he wants to do. And maybe that's part of the reason why he left in, in 2019 is that he saw and he knew what, what was needed to build a successful team. And so he thought he could do that at, at Bahrain. Then he was maybe promised that back at, back at Ineos, but not actually given, you know, the full authority to, to run the team, how he saw fit to be successful. Of course, Ineos will have to replace Rod Ellingworth. And I believe that, well, they are making moves towards doing that at the moment we i have heard nothing about who might be the replacement when the replacement um may be installed but i presume we'll hear something over the next few weeks but chaps um you both said things that sort of sort of speak to a broader issue at Ineos, and we can talk in a minute about this relative success, lack of success they've had over the past couple of years and whether they're trending in the wrong direction. But um, this question of identity and DNA, Ian, you talked about well, people like Pete Kenyuk and riders retiring who knew Rod and had a lot of experience with Rod. Rod leaving now. It's another bit of DNA, original DNA that's being lost. Um, I, I said I'd sort of recap some of the changes over the last few years um, in the DS cars. Um, of course, in 2019, there was the tragic news of uh, Nico Portal's death. Um, that was early in the year. And... Um, I think a lot of the the issues, if you can call them that, um, in the management, or the un- maybe uncertainty is a better word, in the management, maybe stem from that. Because Nico Portal, I don't think anyone was under any illusion about the fact he was very charismatic. He was, he was brilliant at his job. He's certainly uh, very much missed by everyone at Ineos. And there have been various attempts to replace him or to build a team that between them would somehow fill that void. Um, Tim Kerriton, of course, left. The coach who was very closely associated with Chris Froome's Tour de France wins. Gabba Rash, director sportif, has left. Service Carnarvon has left. Um, Matteo Tosato has left at the end of well the, the season that's just gone. He's going to Tudor. Um, Roger Hammond is also now leaving. Lenka, and Lenka at the same time, has left already. Brett Lancaster has yeah. also left. Um, at the same time, there, there are quite a number of new director sportifs that have been sort of drafted in over the last two or three years. I say new director sportifs, I mean also individuals who are new to the job of 
um, director sportif recently retired riders uh, Steve Cummings has come in Christian Knaes has come in Ian Stannard has come in um, Ollie Cookson is still at Ineos um, Zach Dempster as well and then you've got Jabi uh, Zandio who of course is a former um, Sky rider he's also a director sportif but Ian, would you agree that this looks from the outside like a team that needs a new sort of rallying point, totem pole of a leadership figure? I mean, absolutely. I was just, you know, recently uh, got the chance to spend a couple of days with Magna Sheffield, you know, who's a young rider at the team. And just speaking about the differences of the team now compared to when I was at it and, and you know, you think in 2010 when the team started, they had a very clear goal of, you know, winning the Tour de France with a British rider. It was a British team. They had this really strong identity of who they were and what they wanted to do. And, you know, a lot of those goals over the last, goodness, I guess, 12, 13 years now have been ticked off. You know, those have been, they've accomplished it. And through that, they've never really reestablished who are we as a team. You know, they've they've kind of hung on to this, oh, we're a Grand Tour team here to win the Tour. But you look at their roster now, do they really have anyone who can theoretically win the Tour in 2024? Like, I don't think so. But they also haven't really focused on sprints. They chose to not, you know, pick up someone like Cavendish. They don't really have the best, well, they definitely don't have the best classics team. So I feel like they're kind of, you know, the last person in the room, the music stops and they don't have a chair to sit on. They don't really have, you know, a... Uh, uh, a linchpin of the team and an athlete, a goal who's, Hey, we're going to build our team around this, which when I was at the team, that was always, everything stemmed from having a rider at the top who, Hey, we're all going to get behind this. And whether you're not on the tour team, you're at tour of Austria, you still feel like you're part of that team's success. Um, and to see a team with such organization and also such a big budget with the opportunity and the ability to sign riders who could be kind of the, the marquee rider on a team and to have not made those selections in the last couple of years when riders have been available and maybe that means pivoting from grand tours to classics, to sprints, to something else and having not made that decision. Um, it's a little bit worrisome. And, you know, I'm friends with a couple other riders who this past year chose to not sign with that team to go to Yumbo instead for significantly less money because they said, you know what this, I mean, just from what they've heard internally, what's, what's happening with the team, just the culture of the team, the dynamic of it, that they're willing to race for significantly less money and go to a team where they could most likely achieve more success that's more, I don't want to say more functional, but you know, a little bit more on top of it at the moment. And a team that's kind of going up rather than a team that's, you know, kind of seems every year taking a step down. Well, I've also think if... if uh, yeah, just looking at the best... Oh, so, no, sorry, no, no, I'm go sorry, Dan. I, you know, when a team that's used to winning as much as they have... And the team doesn't have either Vingegaard, Evnepoel, or Pogacar. It's it's hard to uh, the, if the culture then starts to crumble. And it's such a word that everyone says, "our oh, team culture," but it is really a thing. And if that starts to crumble, and there's no there's no one that can really carry them through that period, and it didn't seem like it was the case, it, it's really a very very problematic moment for that team right now. Extremely problematic. It's really interesting, isn't it, chaps, when we think about professional cycling teams and this question of how you build, how you create a unifying identity, unifying force. Um, it can be an objective, as you said, Ian, uh, for example, a team who wants, who sets out to win a Tour de France. The sort of ripple effect of that, it's, well, it, it sort of seeps into every aspect of the team and it provides direction for every aspect of the team. 
some teams are or have been in the past de facto national teams and there's a kind of camaraderie that comes from that i'm thinking for example in the past of a, a telecom in germany or a rubber bank in the netherlands um brian cse even to a certain extent at certain times in its history it was a, a, a danish team but um how do you how do you create it otherwise and i'm just thinking back to something teo gagan hart said in our interview last week in a different context talking about sort of recovery and having to take responsibility for one's own recovery and him talking about how every rider in a professional cycling team is effectively their own enterprise their own company they're almost you know they're freelancers that have to build these sort of atomized as i say um one man bands within the larger structure and and that sort of maybe lends itself and creates the danger of cliques forming because then sort of these three or five or ten man or woman cliques can then form within the larger organization and and similarly they can coagulate around nationalities there can be a faction in a team a certain nationality or a certain language and i'm just thinking about ineos grenadiers you know they've got tom pidcock who is one of their headline acts now and he epitomizes this idea of being his own entity he's he's his own sort of multidiscipline entity within Ineos Grenadiers and it's quite difficult to to maybe build a whole structure around him because even physically he's off in different parts of the world competing in different well, disciplines also sometimes. don't forget that hadn't Egan Bernal had that horrific crash um which is, you know, the accidents, really tragic accidents, including the one with Nicolas Portal, which I, I, you cannot underestimate that for the for the team's identity. But also, had Negan Bernal crash, they had a, a bona fide, confirmed Grand Tour winner, and someone who hadn't he crashed could have gone potentially gone up against both Vingegaard and Pugaccia, uh, depending on the on the parkour, etc. So I think that's also been a massive blow to them, even if it is atomized, and even if he was, you know, Colombian living most of the year in, in Colombia. So I think that's also been something that they, you know, they put all their eggs in that Grand Tour basket and then, uh, you know, the the most important one of them fell out. Yeah, I mean, and that's maybe one of the things where the teams, they haven't really adapted to the, to the I guess, the cards they've been dealt. You know, obviously with, with Bernal, you know, and, and I guess even to a degree, you know, they also didn't expect Garrett Thomas to become a Grand Tour contender. You know, I guess we've been kind of trashing them saying they've had a horrible season. I mean, he, he was in prime position to win the Giro, which would have completely shifted you know, kind of our, our narrative of the success that the team had this year. Um, but we also do know that Garrett Thomas is, isn't a, you know, he's no spring chicken. He's not getting any younger, but who's going to fill those shoes, you know, and is G going to come back and, you know, target Grand Tours next year? And for a team of that status and notoriety, is, is Garrett Thomas really the, the rider that you're kind of, you know, building a team around because he's not, he's not young. He's not, I mean, he's a great leader. He's, you know, had great success, but, you know, who are the young riders following and who are they going to, you know, build up to become if, if you know, the, the best rider on your team and the most marquee rider on your team for the Grand Tours is someone who's in their late 30s and, you know, looking more at the end of their career rather than the beginning. Just a couple of final points, chaps. Just on the bare numbers uh, in, you said that, well, it hasn't necessarily been a disaster. It's been far from a disaster. Um, in the last year, they've won 36 races, or in 2023, they won 30 races. Granted, only nine of them were in the World Tour. Um, in 2022, they won 39 races. 
as you said, Ian, fine margins can really dictate, determine, influence our sort of broad brushstroke judgments over whether the team is trending in a positive or negative um, direction. If Geraint Thomas had won the Tour de France, sorry, the Giro d'Italia, we'd probably be having a different conversation. They had injuries as well. Um, some of their young riders had bad injuries. Uh, Magnus Sheffield had problems last year, didn't he, at key moments of the season. Ben Turner as well. There were other examples. Um, but on the other hand... Theo Gegenhardt is their last Grand Tour winner. That's the 2020 Jira. That's going back a fair amount of time now. Um, also, another thing uh, that maybe bears mentioning, just on recruitment as well, um, there was a time when they were seeming to pick up and the sort of Bernal signing was emblematic, really, in this sense. They were they were picking up all the, the best, most promising Grand Tour talent and, and other riders as well. The um, And at that time, Dave Brailsford in particular had an excellent, a very sort of preferential relationship with the agent, Giuseppe Acuadro, who had a portfolio which comprised pretty much all of the hottest talent in professional cycling. There was a time when um, Sky or Ineos, I think, had 13 riders that were in the Aquadro stable. Just a now, correction, Daniel. Bernal no was actually the latest Grand Tour winner in 2021 in the Giro. Sorry. Sorry. That's that's correct. Um, I've been marched off to Corrections Corner. <laughs> rightly, so, rightly so, Brian. Um, but, um, you know, these, are, these might seem like trivial, marginal things, but they can dictate and heavily influence... The, the destiny of a team, um, things like that, you know, a, a team principal's relationship with one agent. And it just so happens that Acuadro's riders, um, well, a lot of them, well, I would say his portfolio has sort of decreased in value over the last um, three or four years. There are other, for example, agents um, who have better relationships with Jumbo Visma. And there seems to have been a pattern that's developed of these other riders, um, sorry, these other agents' riders, all ending up at Jumbo Visma. Um, so it's a, it's a very complex. Can I ask puzzle. you something? Can I ask you um, something, Daniel? Because you follow you go, follow go uh, football, as you call it, in soccer, uh, soccer. <laughs> uh, there's a I don't know if it's not an elephant in the room because he, he's sort of in the room and not in the room uh, at the same time. There, Brailsford. You know, we touched upon it. You know, he's the founding father of the team in a lot of ways. You know, he's in the men behind the idea of marginal gains and he's been through all kinds of weather and he's he's still very much active in the you know become a global player in the international sports scene you know running the Ineos whole Ineos sports package do you think that there's been a, is there a relevant story about him not being so much on the team and still wanting to control things or now going into what would probably be potentially the biggest chapter of his career being in, uh, having a very influential position in Manchester United. I mean, that's it, it, it dwarfs a little bit the team, doesn't it, uh, in terms of uh, the uh, attention and amount of time he's able to spend on it? I think that's the big question. That is the elephant in the room. And it's possibly felt like the elephant in the room to the likes of Rod Ellingworth and other sort of decision makers on the ground level, on pitch level for Ineos Grenadiers over the last couple of years. Um, you know, I spoke to Dave Brelsman at the Tour de France this year. He sort of made a flying visit. It happened to coincide with them winning two stages over one weekend at the Tour de France. And we sort of speculated thereafter uh, over whether... Mm, certain 
changes of direction, for example, in recruitment strategy, the Carlos Verona issue and a couple of others, whether they had also coincided with Dave Brailsford coming in. The pivot on Carlos Rodriguez, it looked as though they were, well, he was going to go to Movistar and then they they changed their mind and they made this desperate last-ditch effort to keep him and they succeeded. But, um, yeah, the spectre of Dave Brailsford, um, I believe that for the foreseeable future and next year as well, when they do appoint Rod Allenworth's successor, Dave Brailsford will still have influence, certainly on the cycling team, but it might be at a similar level to the influence that he's had over the last couple of years. Um, so he will be sort of lurking um, if you Do you have will. any sense that, the, um, that the, is there an uncertainty in the team's future? You know, having you know, working with with Ineos and they they own the team now, right? They're, they're basically it's, it's their team, and as we've seen with with big investors, I mean, they're, they're probably the deepest pockets in in all of cycling. You know, when you look at their general sports portfolio, it's 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 an insane amount of money. But would they accept that something like that would not be as successful as the other entities they had, and would they potentially let it go? You think? It's a good question, Brian. And it's sort of in the absence of uh, clear, explicit sort of messages from Jim Radcliffe, and he doesn't give too many interviews um, on that subject, we're left to guess and speculate on that. You know, this is now the cycling team is very much part of this multidisciplinary vision that having it, you could sort of, again, very painting very broad brushstrokes. Um, and I have seen people divide Dave Brailsford's career into two phases that the sort of marginal gains age this sort of much maligned term which I don't think he likes to talk about too much anymore that was sort of the first phase uh, with Chris Froome winning four Tours de France Bradley Wiggins winning the Tour de France and then the more recent phase when any of us have come on board has been well, when, whenever you talk to Dave Brailsford the thing that he mentions immediately is this vision of cross-pollinating across all of these sports across football and Ineos is interested in that sport with Lausanne and Nice and sailing and the All Blacks and Formula One and the cycling team this idea that through knowledge share sometimes taking individuals from one organization putting them in another organization um, and hoping that they will bring a kind of beginner's mindset to a new world a new discipline bring fresh ideas much in the same way that Tim Kerrison brought fresh ideas to cycling when he came from swimming all that suggests that there's a possibility that someone from another sport entirely uh, will will be I think, will be I, the new head I, at I, team Ineos cycling I, th- I think that's I think that's definitely yeah. a possibility. That's 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 um, my prediction, anyways. Um. Yeah, and, and then it raises the question: Will this uh, this grand plan that is has partially been successful with things like the Kipchoge sub two hour marathon, will this be parked at some point? Will or will this be considered to have succeeded and not to? And will they consider that they don't need to? They need to switch now they're focused to Manchester United and a different set of goals or is this still very much part of that same vision the cycling team still very much part of the same vision yeah I mean I, th- I think that the this cross-pollination kind of theory actually does you know there's so many different things happening in sports now with different training methods nutrition and, and you do learn more through having a wide net of you know kind of researchers and, and you know different things are happening in different sports 
I do potentially foresee Dave also putting someone in position who aligns with Dave. And I wonder how much of, you know, how much tension there was between, between Rod and Dave of, you know, Rod kind of doing things the way that he saw fit versus Dave wanting it to go a different direction and, you know, bringing someone in who maybe kind of falls in line more under the vision that, that Dave and Ineos have for their global sports branch versus the cycling team kind of living independently and doing things the way that, as we know, cyclists and, and cycling teams operate, which sometimes is very much stuck in the past. Can I just ask an open question? And it's not a, a rhetorical one. What's India's point of all these sports sponsorships? What do they want out of it? I think, I mean, I guess the way that I understand it, I think it's legacy. I mean, I think that's really where Jim Radcliffe, you know, because Ineos has very little, well, I guess he does have enough, you know, you look at, you know, Bell staff where Fran Miller is, you know, there are other entities that, you know, are, you know, consumer facing, you know, brands that, you know, do, you know, you do generate, you know, ROI on, on sponsoring a team. But from my understanding, it is, it is about legacy and, you know, creating this sporting, you know, kind of icon where hey we Enios is kind of the i don't know that it is known as a global sports leader across every discipline um, then, then something maybe Daniel, needs to you understand change it differently but massively no, on think... the cycling team right that's not they're not really <laughs> creating any current legacies to speak of are they yeah i think some would suggest you could use the words legacy and vanity interchangeably people have referred to this as a, a vanity project for jim ratcliffe or, or simply fun recreation leisure something that um relatively late in his life or sort of on the back nine he's just decided to do with his fortune and some of think sports, sports washing too a, right that's been mentioned a few times well i was about to say i was about to say sports washing um i'm less convinced by that argument it highlights it highlights what a, they do the more the people see the logo yeah it? and it's a, well it, exactly and it's a company that previously had almost no public profile and that suited them just fine and I think that suited Jim Ratcliffe just fine um, so I don't necessarily think that that is a big part of their motivation Shoot, uh, shoot at du peloton cycling podcast team car the back of the pack please that's Seb Piquet again to remind me to tell you that this episode is also sponsored by NordVPN. It's Black Friday week and NordVPN has a fantastic offer for all of our listeners who want to increase their online security. Go to NordVPN slash TCP and every purchase of a plan, whether the standard plus or complete plan, comes with a bonus four months access to the NordVPN service on top. The best value plan out of interest is the two year plan. And if you get one of those, you'll get an extra four months as well as long as you go to nordvpn slash tcp it's an exclusive offer for our listeners and it's risk-free because nord offers a 30-day money-back guarantee so if you sign up and find it's not for you you can cancel and get a full refund uh, i'm pretty confident that when you see the bonuses that come with a nord vpn plan that's the ability to protect your internet connection at home and on the move on up to six devices you'll quickly realize that it doesn't slow down your internet connection either you can protect yourself from hackers and viruses and anything else that risks your security when you're on the internet and when you're traveling abroad you can log on as if you're at home and continue to watch your favorite shows or sports on your streaming services make sure you go to nordvpn slash tcp to find out more and sign up and get that bonus four months extra cover on top of the plan you choose 
The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, chaps, another big story that's broken over the last few days, and it's certainly, well, it's a regrettable one, one that's caused a lot of consternation among fans, um, is that GCN Plus and the GCN app will close on 19th of December, I believe it is. Um, Certainly, as far as we're concerned, here at Cycling Podcast, we have a lot of friends and associates or colleagues, people we've worked with over the last couple of years who have been associated, employed by GCN. Some of them have lost their jobs. So um, it was, well, it's certainly been a bitter pill to swallow for them. And um, yeah, and certainly our thoughts and our support very much with those individuals at the moment. Um, but chaps, there's been a lot of talk about this and a lot of concern, certainly on the part of I would say particularly viewers who live outside of Europe because there hasn't been too much information about what's going to happen to the races that are currently streamed on the GCN app in particular. A lot of concern about where fans are going to be able to watch races in future. Um, My understanding is that European fans will still be able to watch all of the races that they have been watching on GCN um, on either Discovery Plus either or sorry the Eurosport app or Eurosport Extra depending on which country they're in it may cost more than they have been paying and well this is one maybe point of discussion about GCN um, the subscription fee annual subscription fee which was a, a sort of derisory 40 pounds a year considering what you got for that it was incredibly cheap and whether that fed into why perhaps GCN wasn't performing or GCN plus GCN app weren't performing in the way that Warner Brothers Discovery hoped um, I don't know as far as American viewers Australian viewers people who live in other territories are mm, concerned again my understanding is it's very likely that the races live coverage will come to another streaming platform in the discovery stable um which platform that will be i'm not sure i don't know if warner brothers and discovery know yet um but mm, ian gcn has been a big part of cycling fans lives hasn't it over the past few years particularly in the states and it's changed things it's it's changed the sport and it will leave um uh, a, a big mark certainly those three letters that brand if it is to disappear um well from streaming platforms the channel itself youtube channel is going to continue the website is going to continue which is which is good news and a lot of people consume content on there but gcn as far as streaming live races that's going to disappear the documentaries which a lot of people have enjoyed they are going to disappear um it leaves well a, a big imprint doesn't it Absolutely. And as an American cycling fan, you know, it has really revolutionized the viewing experience. You know, oftentimes, I mean, outside of the the major monuments and and the tour, it was really hard to get, you know, full coverage of of any race. And, you know, you could, I guess the diehard fans, you could poke around the internet and find some, you know, obscure random stream and and maybe get it in in Russian or Dutch or something. Um, But to be an American fan and kind of being in this golden era of, you know, pretty much throughout the racing season every day open up the the GCN app and find a race live with you know English commentary it was it was fantastic and it's something that I hope that they can 
somehow find a way to, you know, continue to bring to, I guess, the North American audience and I guess the global audience, because I think it really did expose cycling to, to more viewers. And like I said, the, the diehard fans are going to find a way. Um, as you said, you know, I just went on my, my subscription the other day and realized I was only paying 49 us dollars a month or sorry, a year for it. Um, which is incredibly affordable for, for the amount of just coverage for racing. But, but not only that, but all the documentaries. And I spent a fair amount of time with Mitch Docker this, this year. And I think he was in four or five different documentaries in the last two years, which is, you know, they were just pumping out content constantly, which I guess is kind of the, the world today, you know, you have to keep producing. Um, and I don't know. And, and also knowing those are not inexpensive to produce. So I just wonder how much did they overreach in trying to, you know, get more viewership versus just focusing on, on the race coverage. Yeah, it's, it certainly looks like that. Um, it certainly, well, one can imagine how expensive that all was um, from an outsider's perspective. And, and Brian, just generally speaking, you know, thinking about Warner Brothers Discovery and also just remembering that this was well, Warner Brothers and Discovery merged in April 2022. It was a, a huge deal. It's sort of tens of billions it was sort of described as a 40 billion um thou- uh, sorry 40 billion dollar deal um but it this organization warner brothers discovery was subsequent to the deal as a result of the deal saddled with debt um 55 billion um in debt they were as a result of the merger and everything you read about well the ceo who is a gentleman called david zaslav and the cfo gunnar Wiedenfels, um everything they've done over the last year and a bit or year and a half at warner brothers discovery has been with a view to to trimming the fat and trying to well, trying to get rid of some of this debt. Um, uh, at last check, they had got rid of $12 billion of debt. But everything, as I say, that they've done has been streamlining, cutting costs. And seen in that light, this is not altogether no, and, surprising, and is it? GCN is probably one of the smallest corks in in the entire in the entire wheel. That's, and when big corporations like that start looking at their spreadsheets, the people making the decisions might not even know what it is. At the end of the day, just looking, oh, this is not there's not a this is not a constant revenue stream, so get rid of it. I just don't understand, and and I'm looking at this as a you know as a very happy cl- uh, customer and all that. I just don't understand that when you have a monopole which they basically had with very, very high customer satisfaction, they could have just upped the prices, right? I mean, and they could have, they would have been able to say, there's a reason why we're doing this, either that or we need to shut down the, the entire thing. And it, I think it also, it, it reflects the decision that if this took uh, even the people who work there completely by surprise, I think. So that just, it confirms my intuition that someone was just saying, oh, you know, that this hasn't created a revenue based on, on the return of effort so and the return of uh, investment so just get rid of it and that's the disturbing thing you know when it happens so abrupt and when when you have such a successful product in at least in the context that we're talking in basically a monopole so that's quite surprising but also when you look at how big corporations do things and how they get rid of things from one day to another it's not very surprising there has been some talk about gcn being for sale um what is left of gcn and being for sale um when discovery took over gcn in 2021 they'd already invested in it i think four years earlier when they took it over 
in 2021 it was valued at 70 million pounds which again is dwarfed by the, the sort of numbers that the figures in which Warner Brothers Discovery are dealing I mentioned their 55 billion dollars of debt um, whether it would be worth more or less now um, if someone was to buy it there's been talk of outsiding various other interested parties um, yeah whether it'd be worth more or less so you know for the YouTube channel there's a, a very profitable well very um, fruitful merchandising business you know there's the documentaries which have been sort of shuttered um, I'm not really sure but of course the key point is that the entity that has the rights for all of the races that we watch and whether it be rcs races aso races that is discovery and it does seem very much as though they want to keep those rights and they will keep those rights and they will broadcast on their channels on their platforms um which means eurosport for a lot of people um so chaps watch this space literally as far as warner brothers discovery eurosport gcn are concerned over the next few months um I wanted to conclude today by talking a little bit about Ian's travels recently, uh, mainly because I've got serious, I've had serious envy, Ian, because you've been in Mexico, and Mexico is a country that um, really fascinates me. There's some sort of recency bias here because I've been on a bit of a deep dive of um, documentaries about drug cartels. Oh, do you, Ian? Film. <laughs> <few weeks. laughs> Films about drug cartels, also about Mexican films, also about the the, the the sort of much more positive things we know about Mexico, the gastron- gastronomy of Mexico. And much in the same way, Ian, as before we started recovering today, recovering, um, we're always recovering, um, recording today... Um, I told you I always I get confused about I mix up Vermont and Montana and I have different sort of mental images of the geography of Montana versus Vermont. Um, I when it comes to Mexico, I think my mental image of Mexico is probably inaccurate in some respects. My single image of the geography topography of Mexico is that of kind of a dust bowl sort of landscape. Um, which would not be that interesting necessarily to travel around. However, I saw a lot of your pictures on Instagram, a lot of your output on Instagram. Um, I also read a couple of things you wrote about or some of the landscapes that you encountered on your travels. And yeah, it stoked my wanderlust, Ian. So tell us why you were there and well, how wonderful it was. Yes. Well, this is actually my fifth time down to the area that I've been going to, which is just north of Puerto Vallarta, which I think a lot of... Uh, I guess it would that would kind of be like the Benidorm of the Pacific, you know, okay. a lot of like big high rises, which which I don't go there. Um, so it, it's about 20, 30 miles north, um, the small town called Bucerias. And yes, yeah, so it's on the Pacific side of, of the U.S. or sorry, not of the U.S., of, of Mexico. Um, but it's it's almost tropical. You know, it's they've just come out of the rainy season. So everything is green and lush. And obviously you're on the beach. Um, but Mexico is also... I think way more mountainous than than people realize. You know, I guess Aguas Calientes, you know, where they have this, you know, world track championships, that's up at, you know, 2,000 meters. Um, and from, from Bucerias, I can easily get up to 3,800 meters within a single bike ride. You know, within, I think, 70, 80K, you can be up at, you know, 3,500 me- or 2,500 meters, which is incredible, you know, f- leaving from the beach. Um, to debunk some of your myths, I actually have a podcast coming out uh, next Wednesday, a Breakfast with Boz about cycling in Mexico. Larry Warbass on it. No, I invited Larry to come out to Mexico, but he said he had to get back to Nice and, and train uh, on, and buckle down. Yeah, and um, it, oh, he told me he's busy next week anyway. He's, he's appearing on <laughs> Joe Rogan next week. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
but no, Mexico, it's a phenomenal place. And as you said, you know, there is stereotypes of, you know, it being dangerous and it being, you know, unsafe, but, um, I've never experienced any of that. You know, even the last day I was there, we went up to, or last weekend I was there, we went up to tequila, which is you know, obviously famous for, for the alcohol and, um, you know, the blue agave fields and did a grand fondo up there with, there was, I think six of us who had traveled internationally for it, but the rest were all, you know, native Mexicans, pretty close to Guadalajara. Tequila is about 80 K from, from Guadalajara. Um, as you've, you've probably seen in the, in the Narcos, Mexico is all based in, in Guadalajara with, uh, with Felix. Um, but it is it is a beautiful country. You know, the, the there's not an incredibly strong cycling culture. I mean, they did just have a, a U23 win the Tour de l'Avenir this year. So I do wonder, you know, is there going to be more emphasis on, you know, co- competitive cycling coming out of there? He, of course, has signed for UAE, hasn't he? As all extremely promising, extremely hotly touted under-23s do nowadays. Um, and he's also... Because um, I try to have somewhere embedded deep in my consciousness uh, a sort of encyclopedia of of the altitude at which riders come from. Um, And it got me quite excited when I heard there was going to be a Mexican World Tour Pro. I was imagining that he was born at sort of 4,000 metres altitude. Unfortunately, he's born at sea level, um, I think. Seems like he's doing okay though, right? Yeah, unfortunately. He is from as i said sea level um and it's i believe it is the west coast of mexico and of course he is the magnificently magnificently named isaac del toro talking of your travels ian you've also been in miami am i right in thinking i have yeah fraternizing with former tour de france champions and other other illustrious members of the professional cycling community yeah, yeah. So after my my travels and, and small little training camp down in in Mexico, I went to Miami for the Best Buddies Challenge, which is a an organization to help people with um, yeah intellectual and developmental disabilities. And speaking of the Kennedys, uh, Anthony Kennedy Shriver is actually the the head of the foundation. Um, so the they have raised I think up to two hundred million dollars over the last I guess it started in nineteen eighty nine I believe. Um, so an incredible organization and, and a ride that I've kind of seen happen. You know, Froomey's been there quite a number of times and this year, yeah, Froome was there again, Magna Sheffield, Cam Worth, Chloe Digert. Gotta see my old boss Axel Merckx was there. Um but there was a surprise guest who I did not know was going to be there and that was Alexander Vinokurov toting his his golden bike and golden helmet as as Olympic champion. Um and I was surprised. That he, won, that he won with an attack on the grassy knoll, on London's grassy knoll <laughs> yes. in 2012. Yeah. Uh, actually, Rigoberto Iran was also there. So I, I was wondering um, what sort of, uh, yeah, what sort of conversations they had. I did not see them speak. Um, but they, I, apparently, Rigo actually has a, has a house in Miami. And he was kind of kicking off his season training in, in Miami starting this week, actually. Um, but so, yeah, there, there was a, a fundraising ride on the Friday and that night was the gala dinner which brought in the likes of of Tom Brady Carl Lewis uh, Nelly played a concert there wow um and I, I shared this with you guys earlier but at the I guess halfway through the night once we were all at dinner Tom Brady was up on stage and and you know of course everything was in English English um Vinokurov does speak some English but mm. did not understand what was going on um but he, he knew who Tom Brady was. Um, so Tom Brady was up on stage throwing out, I think he had 50 footballs to throw out. And if you, if you caught one, you know, everyone put their hands up. It was, it was a $5,000 fee to catch, 
to catch the football. Um, as I said, a very a very big fundraising event. I stayed firmly in my seat um, as not wanting to <laughs> to catch a five thousand dollar football. Um, but Vinokurov, who who was in the who was there attending with his his pregnant wife, um, got up front, caught a football, and then very quickly left the facility um, far before the night was over. Maybe trying to get out of there before he had to pay the the fee for this football. Um, but yeah, it was just it was, a, it, maybe yeah. it was just maybe it was just passed, maybe he passed it here. on to Regal. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> maybe. Well, I was wondering yeah. that if he still had some debts to pay to Rigo and then walked over suddenly and said, "Hey, here's this, here's this football." Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was just it was as strange as it was for me to be there. I just couldn't have imagined what Vinokurov was was thinking being at this event, just because it was. Uh, so different than anything you would experience. I went in 2017. I went out to Astana to do a, an expo crit with with Vino. Went to Circus de los, oh, Cir- wow. Cirque du Soleil with him, yeah. um, and that was a weird experience. I went out with Froome, and It was weird to you know just go to Kazakhstan. It's such a different country. Um, but I think him coming to this event and to this gala dinner where Tom Brady's throwing, you know, over a you know fancy dinner, throwing footballs around the room for people to catch, uh, a far different experience and a far more strange experience for him to uh, to attend this event. I don't know whether this content would be more at home on uh, Vino out of out of context Twitter feed or a Nelly out of context Twitter feed or maybe a Tom Brady out of context. Uh, one more feed. thing that I actually just remembered from the night. Um, so Vino, very he was actually sitting at my table. Um, you know, after he had received this football, he 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 left, um, and I moved over to where he was sitting to speak to someone else. And I realized that he had forgotten his phone at the table. Um, and I was like, oh boy, I wonder what sort of messages I'm going to receive on this phone. And and he very promptly returned to the table uh, 15 minutes later to, to retrieve his phone. But uh, it would have been an interesting telephone to have my hands on for you know, yeah. a couple of days to see what comes in. Yeah, t- five minutes scrolling through Vino's WhatsApps. That would be, uh... <laughs> Yeah, they're talking about entertainment um, and the, the sort of platforms offering entertainment in the world of press on cycling. Well, that'd be a hell of a, yeah, a hell of a source of titillation, I'm sure. Um, Ian, uh, you read with Chris Froome. Uh, Chris Froome's been in the news again a little bit over the last few days. Our colleagues at Radio Cycling, they did an interview with Sylvan Adams in which, uh, well, he was pretty robust again in his reaction to Froome's various laments about his equipment not fitting him over the last few months or past couple of years maybe um do you talk about stem lengths or anything of that yeah nature? i mean i mean so i guess um and Froome was very quick in our first ride together to explain kind of what had happened and how you know when he first jumped on his new bike from the team you know he was still coming back from rehab. So everything kind of felt different. He jumped on the bike and assumed it felt the same until a couple of months ago when he, he took one of his tour bikes off to go for a ride around the block with his kids and said, Oh, I feel so much better on this bike. And somehow realized that his stem was and his reach was, was three centimeters. Uh, it is lo- three centimeters longer now on his, on his new bike compared to his tour winning bikes. Um, which led to a series of articles, you know, him claiming that that's been part of the reason why he hasn't been performing at the top level, which bike position does have, an impact on, on how you ride and, you know, what, what Chris was saying to you, it's really affected his back, which is, you know, affected his, you know, power output. That said, um, I ride different bikes all the time and I don't notice, you know, if I shortened up my stem three centimeters, I'm not all of a sudden going to, you know, be at the front of the world tour again. And, you know, it's, it's hard to know how different 
individuals, you know, kind of respond to bike position. Some people are incredibly particular about it. Um, but it just seemed a little bit strange for me to think that Froome thought it would make such a big difference. You know, that three centimeters on your stem would actually be the difference between, you know, winning the tour or being on the podium or the top five versus, you know, not even making the tour team. Um, you know, and the sport, the reality is the sport has changed a lot since, you know, 2020 when Froome had that crash, 2019 when Froome had that crash. Um, and, and it's hard. And I think it's hard for, you know, athletes to realize that things have changed, things have developed and moved on. And, you know, I think psychologically you can find, you know, a million reasons why, you know, you're not performing at the same level. Um, it has been interesting just to see the dynamic between him and, and Sylvan Adams, though. You know, it seems like as such a high paid rider on the team that he and, and Sylvan, you know, butt heads more often than not um, versus just, you know, sitting down in a room together and figuring out, OK, what's the plan going forward? How can we both, mm. you know, maximize our, our time here as, you know, as employer and employee? Yeah, I think if you look up buyer's remorse in a dictionary, you see a picture of Sylvan Adams with his arm around Chris Froome. But an extraordinary contract that Chris Froome signed. Um, and why wouldn't you in his position? Five years, at what, at what age was he? He was 35, 34, 35, yeah. I think, when he signed a five-year contract. Um, having just come back from a, a pretty disastrous injury, having not yet at that point proved or suggested in any way shape or form that he was going to be able to get to or rescale previous heights um quite remarkable but um i say all power to chris Freeman for digging in his heels why not I yeah probably, i mean yeah. i would possibly do the same yeah and i guess you know the one thing that just still is impressive to me is that Froome wants to do it you know he that he still wants to go through the training and the motions and you know it, it's not for lack of trying that he's not performing you know he's still putting in the miles he's still doing the training and you know dieting and, and doing all these things um and I think that that's like you know really a testament to who he is and that's you know I think we oftentimes forget where he came from and what he has achieved and I think you know with the new crop of you know riders who are you know dominating and you know a team like Yumbo winning all three grand tours in the year is Similar to Sagan, you know, I think once someone kind of goes off the mark of, of who they were, it's easy for us to forget what they did and where they came from, what they achieved. And I think that's very much the case with Froome. It almost seems like he's hanging on to something. Um, but I think, honestly, in his mind, he still believes he can get back to, to the highest level, which is, yeah, admirable and, and impressive. Um, you know, we'll, time will tell if he, if he can do it or not. But the fact that he believes he can do it is is something to be admired. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting how you can have different or riders have very different approaches to retiring and when the moment is right to retire. Um, I talked about Garrett Thomas's podcast with Larry, um, but Garrett Thomas did a great podcast with Tom Dumoulin recently in which Tom Dumoulin talked about how he was perfectly at peace with not really enjoying professional cycling anymore and having to having decided to retire very early and it was it was also interesting hearing Garrett Thomas's reaction to this um, and and him saying to Tom Dumoulin oh it's nice to hear someone who is so at peace with what they've achieved and what they no longer want to do in professional cycling but it is very personal isn't it I mean again in my interview with Teo last week we talked about time our relationship with time um, I'm one of those people who um, is unyielding in um, I'm one of these people who refuses to acknowledge the merciless march of time um, and Chris Froome is very much I think of the same 
cut from the same cloth but there are others who have a much more <laughs> much more healthy um relationship with with time and the irreversibility of time yeah, um, and, yeah. and it's, it's something that fascinates me with with not just cyclists but you know even look at some of the more successful businessmen in the world that they choose to continue to work you know you have all the money in the world and you continue to work and you know Froome, you know he's won four he's won every grand tour and four tours um you know even cavendish now choosing to to race one more year it it really that mindset really fascinates me as to why people find the need to do one more and because the the odds of you know Cav going back and being at prime fitness on you know stage eight or whatever of the of the tour is like the, the odds are stacked against you but i guess that's what makes champions is people who kind of defy the odds and do come back whether it's Froome or you know Cav or you know even garrett thomas to a degree you know still you know finishing second at the giro this year i don't think i didn't expect that to happen um but you know it's that internal belief that i guess the most successful people in the world have that kind of do shape their their careers and their legacies in connection with this that if i was sitting with the and that's the only, my only route to becoming a millionaire if if the big lottery ticket came in i would still want to do the cycling podcast oh it's <laughs> like that Larry. Like Larry. <laughs> um <laughs> On that note, chaps, um, it's been a delight to have you as always, and we'll be speaking to both you, no doubt, in the coming weeks. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.